Whether you watched it premiere or found it on a top 10 list well after it left the airwaves, everyone has that one show that made an impact on their lives. Nostalgic faves and bizarre finds. Here on You Got to Know, we explore cult classics and cancel shows found between 1995 and 2005. My name is Bo, and I invite you to join some friends and I as we discuss this fascinating era of television. What happened that night? What they witnessed sent two brothers on a quest for answers 22 years later. Dad's on a hunting trip, and he hasn't been home in a few days. Saving people, hunting things, it's the family business. This is Supernatural. Welcome back. We are once again joined by our unknowable guest. Welcome. It's good to be here. Very appropriate for talking with our unknowable guest. We are talking about Supernatural. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I was in the Super Who Lock. <laughs> oh. I was there, Gandalf. Do not quote the sacred text to me. I was there when they were written. I watched this show premiere. God. Not to do that again at the very top of the episode, but... Because I was a Smallville kid, <laughs> Jensen Eccles was in season four of Smallville, and uh, they killed off his character for him to star in Supernatural when it got picked up. So everywhere I turned, I was getting marketed Supernatural. It was advertised heavily during the show. It was, like, in all these press releases, whenever I would, like, go on my Googling every now and then to look at pictures of Smallville on Google Images, because what else did you do when you were a child in the 2000s? Like, I could probably go to my bookshelf, find my Superman comics from elementary school, and there, I promise you, every single one from Up, Up, and Away, there is a Supernatural ad in the very last page. Did I ever tell you about how I got into Supernatural? No. So you remember Crazy Mike's video, which was like a local uh, DVD rental? Well, first it was VHSs, then it was DVD, that was like independent and an alternate to Blockbuster that lasted up until two years ago, I'd say? I thought it was three. Two or three. I don't, time's an illusion. Like, way more recently than it should have, as, you know a video rental store. But especially in middle school, I would go in there a lot because we didn't have cable from the time I was like four to the time I was 14. Mm -hmm. So I'd go in there and I saw Supernatural on the shelf and I thought that looks really interesting because I've always liked paranormal shows. Same. So I just started renting it and watching it and it took me long enough to catch up that I was only able to start watching the premieres in the, um, oh, I think in the eighth season. It gets kind of muddled in my head because I was a teenager, but um, I watched it just on my own, on DVD. That's so funny, because season eight's when I stopped. I stopped partway through season 10. We are not going to cover all 15 seasons of this. I, I care about myself and I don't I care about myself too much to put myself through that again. I am a massive supernatural fan. It's something that like it really means a lot to me mm-hmm. and it was a big part of my life for a long time. And it's the kind of thing where like whenever I'm having a bad time, I just start watching it again. Mm-hmm. Like in grad school, I went through seasons 1 through 7. But my personal parameters with it is because of my own nostalgia and because I did not like some of the changes in character and writing that were going on, I don't really consider anything past season eight to be canon, and I consider season six through eight to be more fanon that was videotaped. And even then, I think seasons one through three kind of form their own little segment too. Like, I would argue you could divide Supernatural up into, like, seasons one to three and seasons one to five, and then one to whatever your personal preference is, just because of the various story changes that were made and the different directions it took. But I definitely understand why you only wanted to do season one. I just hope that one day, one day we can do a special episode that's one through three or one through five. We'll see yet how it goes. That's gonna take 
I'm going to be honest. I will give my thoughts at the end of what the episode, but it's going to take a big push for me to be able to commit to two more seasons of this. I, I want to, but I'm thinking out for myself right now. What's actually kind of interesting with the whole seasons one through three and changes in those later seasons is I was watching a video from a YouTuber called Rachel McDonald. I'll link her channel in the show notes, but I started watching her because she talks about my favorite 90s and 2000s shows. She talks about Charm. She talks about Buffy. We got a little bit of Smallville in there, just a little bit as a treat. But she has a video on Bella Talbot, and I didn't get to finish the video before we started recording, but she actually had mentioned how season three, most of most of the writing changes came from the fact that that was being filmed during the writer strike of 2007, which I'm going to be honest, I totally forgot about that. Oh, me too. I remember how pivotal that was for so many of my favorite shows, but I always forget about it when I'm re-watching shows. And you get to that one season where you're sitting there like, what's going on? That explains a lot about my main problem with season three is the fact that they keep forgetting that Dean has a very limited time. Yeah. But it does, season three and season two definitely both have their merits. I think one of the big things about this show when I was a child and I kept seeing like all these ads and watching it premiere and stuff is it looked so starkly different from most shows I was used to. Like we definitely have that post 9-11 grim dark aesthetic to a lot of shows in 2005 especially. But because I grew up on shows like Smallville and America's Next Top Model, I had more of that like bubblegummy look to the shows I grew up with. And then I just got slapped in the face with this sepia toned that mess. And it was the first show that really got me into serialized horror. This was actually, wait, yeah, this was pre-Stephen King. Oh my God, Supernatural was my introduction to horror. I just realized that. I just had the mental thing of, oh, it was my introduction to horror. And then I remembered I was watching Supernatural avidly before I got into Stephen King. Good. Who I always consider my introduction to horror. So there's one thing with the aesthetic that I, um, I always kind of noticed it, but it really stuck out to me this time when I was looking, is that visually they are so, it's so tight in a good way. Like they make sure that everything fits the vibe that they're going for. And what I really appreciate about first season, and I think they do to some degree maintain it through the next two, in the first season, they have this really defined aesthetic of poor Americana and of like impoverished, rural, blue collar. And they do it in a way that is not polished. Yes. And that is what I think always really spoke to me is I've always really loved the Americana aesthetic and they were able to take it and distill it so perfectly into this like sepia-toned, 35-millimeter filmed masterpiece that always looks kind of cold and kind of wet and really run down and old. And they do it in a way that doesn't like polish it or glorify it. It doesn't look staged. And one thing that um, really hit me in Route 666 and Faith is that they were able to capture really, like, Middle American and Southeastern aesthetic, like, poor aesthetic, without making it this, like, polished, oh, this is how we think it's supposed to look. It's like, no, I feel like these are real places. I am, like, literally, like, bouncing in my seat right now because you are finally putting words to what I've been trying to describe about the first season of Supernatural that makes me love it so much more over all the other seasons. They knew exactly what they wanted. They knew exactly what they wanted. They knew exactly what they had. And they said, we can make this work. Especially because they did film not too far from us in Vancouver. But they still make it look like other places. They do. And they do it so flawlessly because, um, not to bring up Smallville again, but Smallville also filmed in Vancouver. And there are so many times where it's like, yeah, that's Kansas. They can make it look like Kansas, no problem. But then there are other times 
usually when they're doing Metropolis, where it's like, you are not fooling me. I know that is Vancouver. That is wet and dreary in a way that only Vancouver can be. (laughs) You gotta slap a filter on it, okay? (laughs) And the thing that impressed me so much about how well they did their aesthetic is, like I said before, it's tight. Like, Mm -hmm. the, the cars that you see, they're not, like, vintage cars, but they're older the time period it's supposed to be. And Sam and Dean, the boys, as I call them, affectionate, derogatory, <laughs> um, they're both styled in a very timeless way, and especially, like, their clothing that's layered. It all looks older. Like, it looks like they got it thrifted. Pretty much all of their stuff looks older, except for Dean's nice gun. Like, everything else looks very secondhand. But then again, if I'm gonna talk about the way the boys are styled, I gotta talk about the thing that I mentioned to you that has always bothered me, and that's the fact that all of the women in the first season are flawless, like, visually. I think they actually do a good job at having different female characters in episodes, like, they're not all cookie-cutter ladies in trouble, but they are all stereotypically beautiful for 2005 in, like, a fucking Seventeen magazine kind of way, and they're all styled very very 2005 which is jarring sometimes because you have such a like worn down blue collar middle america style and you see someone that's dressed like the way a blue collar woman might be but in such an aggressively 2000s way like the super low rise jeans and the two short tank tops oh god yeah i and the hair god the hair I was literally gonna say, like, Meg's hair. Oh, Meg's hair. Oh, I love Meg so much. And I feel like in her introduction, they actually did really good at keeping her low-key. Like, she looked like just a random 19-year-old who's hitchhiking her way across the country. And she's gonna look good if she wants to, but on her terms. And then... I get that she wasn't under that cover, like, she didn't have that cover story after a certain point, and she started to look nicer. Yeah. But it just felt weird. It felt very, like, trying to make her not more beautiful than she is, but more beautiful than I think a demon would want to be. Yeah, like, she was trying when she literally did not have to. Like, I understand there was still kind of the trying to seduce Sam over a bit, but that doesn't change that it just didn't fit the rest of it. It felt too forced. So can I mention a little pet theory about Meg? Please do. I mentioned in um, Salvation and Devil's Trap, I was like, wow, is it just me or does Meg's hair look really shitty? Like, shittier than before. And before it had kind of like this fun home-cut punk look. But then in Salvation and in Devil's Trap, it is looking like a sad mullet. Um, Mm -hmm. And I went the route of, like, I'm sure the actress was just growing her hair out. And it it was in that awkward stage. Like, well, maybe it's just that she's wearing her vessel out. (laughs) And that's why her hair looks bad. Ooh, I like that. And also, to put more onto this headcanon, because I have supernatural brain rot... Maybe she was dressing more beautifully and trying to look more appealing because her vessel was wearing out and that distracted from the fact that she was starting to look kind of haggard. Ooh, okay. I love this. I'm really into this. I think that's giving the writers and the stylists too much credit, but like... That's all fandom's about. (laughs) for, For someone who's too into Supernatural, I choose to believe these things. Okay, can we talk about the ghost editing? First episode, Woman in White... First of all, iconic urban legend to start your show out on. Fucking gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And then this, oh, I don't want to say the subtlety, but it's from other ghostly shows because I was hardcore into like Ghost Whisperer in middle school. Oh my God, I love Ghost Whisperer so much. God, yeah. I was hardcore into any ghosty show. None quite does it like Supernatural. Their ghosts are so... They are somehow both polished, but visceral. Like, they know exactly what they want from them in a, you know, this is the 
hardcore lore. This is the rules of ghosts. And they stick to it so hard in season one. I don't remember (laughs) if they continue to. But in season one, they stuck to it in a way that let them just pull these visceral stories out of them just from looking at them. So I've got a couple of things with the supernatural ghost that, like, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I can't remember because the ghost episodes were never my favorite episodes, except in the first season. Because in the first season, they deal with each ghost in a really unique way. And in the future, it's a little bit more cut and dry, salt and burn, and that's fine. But I liked how creative they were with each ghost in the first season. And I really liked how when the ghosts moved, especially the woman in white and Bloody Mary, where it looked like they had taken out frames to make the movement so much more jerky. And I thought that was so cool. And I don't think that's necessarily something that they continue, but I don't, I would have to watch more to refresh myself because I don't pay as much attention to the ghosts, but that's... The ghosts are one thing that I think they did very, very well, both aesthetically and writing-wise. Also, I just have to mention, I'm forgetting her name. Oh no, I need to Google her real quick. Uh... I also liked how they did demon smoke in the first season more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Because I think that especially the demon smoke in Phantom Traveler looked creepy than just the stereotypical smoke they did later. Like, way more creepy. And I preferred how in that one, the one time you see a demon possess someone in Phantom Traveler, the demon smoke goes in through the eyes. Like, I think that is way better than it going in through the mouth. God, yeah. That always freaked me out. Okay. I'm sorry if I'm saying her name incorrectly, but uh, there is a ghost episode The episode specifically is escaping me, but it's the one with the family portrait that's haunted. Provenance. Provenance. Uh, The little girl ghost. Oh, yeah. Is played by Joe Del Furland. Uh, She's on TikTok, which is how I found her again and discovered that uh, this, this beautiful woman who played Brie Tanner in Twilight also starred in uh, Silent Hill. (laughs) And she played several other creepy little girls growing up, which, how iconic do you have to be that you just keep getting cast as the the murderous little ghost girl over and over and over again? So, my supernatural motel room take. My, I've always loved that they stayed in, like, tacky motel rooms, but something that they didn't continue well enough is the fact that in the first season, all of their motel rooms look like they were made in the 50s and 60s and are as ugly as you would imagine and have aged the right way there's just something about the motel rooms in this show their aesthetic their commitment to aesthetic at least in season one it does not last long but at least in season one is just so good Because later they stick with the whole ugly old motel room thing but the motel rooms never look aged enough yeah like, they look like they were just built ugly a couple of years before. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious. Where <laughs> it, it definitely has the feel of, oh, fans fans like ugly stuff. Fans like, fans like these bad things. And it's like, no, 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 no. No. Fans like the aesthetic of a motel room that was built in the 1950s and has seen hard wear since then. Yes. Like, they're have been a couple murders here it hasn't really been maintained and no one cares anymore there's water damage somewhere there there's probably a mold problem that should be addressed but no one's got the time for it oh gosh okay so i i remember how mad you were at me for this but i'm gonna be honest i totally forgot the journal was a thing Oh no, that's totally okay, because they don't use the journal enough in later seasons. Like, I, it got to the point where legitimately I had to sit there like, there was a journal? The thing is, Bobby kind of replaced the journal later on. He really did. Which is fine, like, I totally love Bobby, mm-hmm. and it makes more sense to me for them to be so attached to the journal in the first season, because they don't know where Dad is, he's never let us hunt on our own like this before, so they're really clinging hard to the concrete 
thing that they have from their father. And then later on, they get a father figure to replace the apt yeah, one. They, and they know they know by then that John is just dead. So like there's not hope after that and there's not as much of a reason to cling to it when they have Bobby who arguably knows more. God, when did John die? I forgot about that. He dies in the first episode of the second season. Oh yeah. I completely forgot. <laughs> totally okay. He he sells his soul to save Dean and he's only given like a few right. hours instead of 10 years. God, yeah. I remember that. Wow. Yeah, that's when they got into Deal's Demons and slowly forgot about Monster of the Week. Yeah. One thing I really appreciate with the journal is how flawlessly they were able to write their lore drops in with it. Because there could have so easily been, like, well, eventually there was some less than interesting lore drops for whatever they were facing. And even after a certain point, just kind of dropping that because they went hardcore Christianity, which that's great. You do you. Mm -hmm. But it didn't have as interesting of lore drops as, oh, we're in the middle of this. Hey, wait, this sounds vaguely familiar. Here it is. Dad dog-eared it. Maybe it's a sign. Like, that, that was fun because it fed into that overarching plot line that the journal gave them. And it's also, can I get, like, a little bit, can I read two into the journal really fast? Do it. That's exactly why we're here. So the thing about their lore drops by way of the journal is I found it really interesting watching the show because they were raised as hunters, right? Mm -hmm. Presumably they should know a lot about this, but John was such an authoritarian, he controlled the knowledge so that he could control the boys. Oh, God. And, like, there's always... There's always going to be things that, you know, you can't, that you're not ready to know or that I decide to keep from you for your own safety. And that let him have such a place of power over his sons. It's kind of indicated when they're looking at the journal in the pilot episode that he does not let the boys handle the journal. Mm -hmm. And now they're allowed to. So even though they were raised as hunters, we get these lore drops because this information was specifically hidden from them as a tool of control. Oh, God, that's... <laughs> There's so much about John where I'm just like, you're a terrible father, why are you doing this? You're a terrible father, why are you doing this? Get out! I mean, he does eventually, but... In Dead Man's Blood, when he tells Dean, like, there's some rust and you need to take care of that. I wouldn't have given you the Impala if you were going to trash it. Every time he says that, I want to just jump through my TV screen and throttle him. I'm and for the sake of your listeners, for the sake of your listeners, I am five foot two and I get stuck in revolving doors sometimes because I do not have the body strength necessary to get out. <laughs> Can you hear me punching the pillow? I am, I am, oh my god. That scene specifically, oh god. <laughs> like, I'm very butch presenting, but I am a tiny, weak little academic, and yet I just want to fight John Winchester on site. <laughs> oh my god, did we get a lore drop about the unknowable guest? <laughs> He'll fight. <laughs> <laughs> Butch presenting will fight. <laughs> yeah, that's what I really like about the journal is because it serves not only as a lore drop for the audience, but it tells us so much more about their relationship with their father and their relationship to the family business. And that just perfectly summarizes the writing of season one, because honestly, that is something that stuck out to me so much rewatching this is because it is such a long show. Most of what I remember is in high school when I was part of the fandom, you know, when I was in Super Hulock, and it definitely turned into joke territory where instead of the show is good because it has some jokes is the show is good because it is a joke. So I forgot how damn good the show can be. Mm -hmm. I forgot how compelling and emotionally painful this show can be. And especially when it comes to the boys and their relationship to their father. There's the scene that specifically did it for me in Scarecrow is the opening scene when 
Sam answers the phone and it's their dad. And this is part of the reason why I feel like that is this series remedial chaos theory for those who know community is that scene alone tells you so much you need to know about the family's dynamic and about the brother's dynamic because you have Sam who is being rebellious. He is being argumentative and he's like, no, you're going to tell me more. Then you have Dean who is so desperate to hear from his father again and the second he does, you can see it in Jensen Eccles' eyes. He is such a good actor in that scene where he just kind of shuts down and goes into yes sir mode. And there's something else about that specific scene that I realize I didn't put in my notes is that when they're having the fight outside of the car and Dean says, I will leave your ass here. And Sam just goes, I want you to and walks off. We were talking about that because I mentioned, I don't know if this was intended by the writers, but it's something that I firmly believe, and that it is that John has threatened Dean with those exact words, and Dean is shocked that they don't work on Sam, because they would have worked, they worked like a charm on Dean, just threatening to be left. Because later, later in, I think either Dead Man's Blood or Salvation, he says, I think it's in Salvation, he says to Sam... Like, you and dad are all I have. Not just that the family is all they have, but that his whole life is John and Sam. And the threat in Scarecrow of, I will leave your ass here, like, it always sounded to me like he was quoting John. I'm gonna be honest, I have now curled up in fetal position in front of my computer. (laughs) I'm crying a little bit. This show is not good if you have daddy issues. (laughs) But also there are just those scenes like that where that scene specifically didn't sound like Dean from what we were presented up until that point, because it was very much this family forward of he's not going to let Sammy go again. He's not going to lose his brother again. Even if Sammy went back to a normal life, he wasn't going to let that Mm -hmm. relationship go anymore. So that scene just felt very out of character, but in a good way, because tensions were so high, it was more likely for something to slip. Yeah, that's the thing, is I'd say he was definitely, on some level, quoting John, and I don't know if that was intentional, but I choose to believe that it is. Okay, I need, if we're gonna talk about Scarecrow, even just briefly, I just need to scream about the veneer. I need to scream about the veneer. Go ahead. I must scream about the veneer. Because, okay, <laughs> I when I watched this show for the first time, I was a child. I did not realize how racist a lot of what the plot lines were. I did not realize how culturally appropriative it was, especially with specific mythologies that just should not be touched by people outside of the culture. Yeah. And going into this show, I was at least vaguely aware with an adult mind of, you know, this is not going to be as good as I remember it. There are going to be things that not necessarily ruin, but change the way that I look at it. But I didn't really realize fully until it got to Scarecrow. Because (laughs) Norse mythology is a huge part of my life. And I cannot tell you how much I was screaming at the screen when they kept talking about the vanner as they they couldn't even say the name right in a quick recap of norse mythology uh there are two tribes there are the aesir think your thor your odin your frig uh the main pantheon that most people think of then you got your vent veneer Van- frig now i can't remember how to say it right god damn it supernatural See, they say Sam Hain instead of Samhain, which always pissed me off. And their Latin pronunciation, I'm going to drop a little more information about me, the mystery guest. Um, I can say, as somebody who has studied Latin, their Latin pronunciation is abysmal. Yeah. Like, admittedly, Latin is a dead language, and people will argue over pronunciation until the cows come home, but I can listen to the way Sam reads the exorcism in Devil's Trap and say that is the worst Latin pronunciation you could have. Yeah. Think of it this way. The Aesir, they are your more, quote-unquote, modern gods. Your war, your technology, things like that. 
technology in loose terms. Things think like nets. Yeah. Then you got your veneer. Your veneer are your primordial nature gods. You know, you got Mjord, the sea god. You got his twins, Freya and Frigg. You got the goddess of beauty and love, and you got the god of nature. In Supernatural, in Supernatural, they're not even really gods. They, they're like, yeah, they're technically gods, but they're more like these forest spirits that have to be appeased by yeah, human sacrifice every now and then. And I'm sitting here like, I, you know what? I'm not going to say I'm an expert on Norse mythology. I've read it most of my life, but I'm nowhere near an expert. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure they're not just forest spirits who happened to just get a little extra. I'm pretty sure that's not what the veneer are. I'm pretty sure you're not even saying it right. And see, I think that they treat the veneer more like sort of knockoff fae almost. God, they really do. Or like, um, there's a specific term for this that I'm completely forgetting, but like a regional god or a local god as opposed to like an actual god god. Not that regional gods were any less powerful, but in past mythology, gods that were attached to specific regions and very specific places tended to have much more intimate forms of worship and intimate connections with their people. See, I'm reading Percy Jackson right now. I should remember at least what the Greek term for that is. Or not the Greek, the Roman term for that is. Because it's like a thing, right? Yeah. Um, my brain specifically, because I'm reading Percy Jackson right now, went to the Roman like house god. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they're not necessarily big pantheon, but they are they are very precious to you. <laughs> they're very precious to me. So something that I'm seeing in my notes that I should have mentioned when I was riffing on the journal is that even with how little they know in a concrete way about their own world and need to get from the journal. I think that season one was really fantastic about showing how competent they are as hunters. Yeah, that that was definitely the best part about it is they may not know what they are doing, but they have enough of their own skills and insight to be able to troubleshoot whatever they're dealing with. And that's the thing is it it displays their competency so well that, first of all, it makes demons even more terrifying. Mm -hmm. Like, they do a really good job at, I guess, power scaling, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Which is something that they suffered from later because, you know, when you fought the devil, what do you do next? <laughs> you fight God. So that's that, that was their problem, is they had, um, I guess, the TV equivalent of power creep. But in the first season, they're really good at establishing how competent the boys are and making you believe that, like, the vampires and the demons are actually really threatening and scary because you see and believe how competent they are. Mm -hmm. And I think, okay, I realized a little beef that I had with the writing later on. I don't think they should have had John in the season any less. I think he's really important where he is to establish the family dynamic. However... <laughs> you don't see enough of him being competent that it kind of bothered me. Oh, yeah. Because they talk the whole season oh, yeah. about, like, dad is the best, dad does all of these things. Like, I have another thing about them using ruses and costumes, but that's <laughs> for later. But just all the stuff about how, like, John Winchester is the best, and then you actually see him in action, but they immediately throw him up against really difficult enemies like vampires and demons. And it's like, so this is the guy that we've been hyping for an entire season? Mm-hmm. Because they don't have enough time to establish his competency in a way that you can see. It would have probably been better if he had kind of come in last minute on the vampire episode. I agree. I understand why he did, but if it had been like, they could have swapped an episode after dead man's blood so that you know we got him swooping in to save the day in the vampire episode and then we got all of those good character moments afterwards to lead up mm -hmm. to the eventual kidnapping of him yeah that would have been like the cherry on the cake of him as a character can i riff a little on john's character and how he's written into the story and like some tangential things with that. Oh, please do. Okay, I have a lot of feelings about John Winchester. I would call myself neither an apologist nor a stan. I just, I, I got a lot of feelings about him. 
And one thing that stuck with me this time was a thing that I adore about the first season is that they use all kinds of different ruses and different fake IDs and even like full costumes to get into places they shouldn't be and get information they shouldn't have. And I remember specifically in um, Shadow, they're dressed up as like alarm technicians to go into the murdered girl's apartment. Mm-hmm. And Sam is disgruntled. I think either Sam or one of them is disgruntled about it. And they're like, you know, dad never has to do this. Yeah. Because um, dad can just walk in. And that's the thing is it's one of the little areas where you get to learn about John and about not just how he's perceived by his sons, but how he's perceived by others, that he is supposedly charismatic enough that he doesn't need all of these other ruses. He gets in on force of personality alone. And then the fact that in Devil's Trap, when John is possessed, the whole time he's not acting quite right, but when I was watching it this time, I zeroed in on the moment where he said, son, give me the gun, please. John does not say please. John gives orders. Yes. And the thing is, I love the take on that scene where it's like, oh, he told the boys that he's proud of them. That is not something John would do. And I agree with that. But Dean doesn't actually catch it until John says please because John only gives orders. And to put salt in the wound, that therefore means that he didn't pick up on the demon being the one praising him because he is so desperate for the praise of his father, he was willing to believe something totally out of character. I'm going back into fetal position. (laughs) Were you expecting this when you invited me to come into this as me just going like so? Dean Winchester is really fucked up. I mean, so is Sam, but Dean is the one who, like, they are ignoring all of these out-of-character things of their dad being like, I'm proud of you because they want their dad to be proud of them. And it's not until he does something so out-of-character as saying, please give me the gun, that Dean is like, you're not my dad. My dad would have ordered me to hand the gun over. Also, when he's talking about how dad would have been pissed for him using a bullet to save him. Like, oh my god! Yeah. Oh god, an interesting point on that that I have actually been thinking about for like a good week right now because there's another Rachel McDonald video where she addresses the whole is John Winchester a good father argument that the fandom used to have. You know, is John a good person? Mm -hmm. Uh, Her take on it was John was a good person but he was a bad father because he put hunting for the yellow-eyed demon above the safety and stability of his sons. He put revenge for Mary above their children. And that perfectly encapsulates, like, that's just been circling in my head ever since because John was a good person, but he was a good person who couldn't put one bad thing behind him and everyone around him suffered as a result. He put his dead wife over his living children. So can I add to that a little bit by something that like I've considered to be part of John's character personally? Please do. That's the thing is I don't think he's a bad person. I think he's a bad father. And I think that he has a lot of these toxic parental habits that parents just sometimes have because people aren't perfect, but it tends to impact their kids the most. Like the way he remarks to Dean, I wouldn't have given you the Impala if I knew you weren't going to take mm-hmm. care of her because like that that car is Dean's life. And I don't think he necessarily intended it with malice. I think he just doesn't think before he talks. And the thing with him and Dean is what I believe is that he's a good person, but not a good father. And part of why he's not a good father is he rewarded Dean for being the good little soldier even unintentionally, because he unconsciously molded him into a little mini Marine. Yeah. It's got layers, man. It's got layers. Oh, God, this show. It's a fucking onion. It's just, it's got layers. And the only thing in that show that really made me believe in the competence of John was characters from their past coming back and giving them hunts, like in Phantom Traveler and Route 666. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Because that is one thing that is not carried over into other seasons that I absolutely love. And it's people from their past who got help from John or got help from the brothers going, hey, something else weird is going on. Can you help? Because it also shows the kind of trust that these men instill in other people. Man, I love the episodes when they have people from the past coming back for help. Those episodes are just like chef's, just chef's kiss for all those episodes because it says so much about the characters it says so much about the world that they're in where it's like just because this one's uh, dealt with doesn't mean you are scot-free from any other monsters for the rest of your life you better keep that uh, hunter's number in your pocket you better uh, keep their partner's number because you don't know if you're going to be able to contact any of them again if something starts uh, bumping in the night again. Once people know things exist, they're going to be more savvy as to catching on if something else is happening that's weird. Yeah, sort of like in the last episode when they were discussing the yellow-eyed demon popping up again, John was talking about how he knew where the yellow-eyed demon was going to be again because he was looking at the weather patterns. He was looking at the signs. And the brothers, they they don't even say anything. There's just like a moment where they're all kind of like half wanting to ask, were those signs around us before mom died? And John's just like, you don't even have to ask. I checked and all the signs were crystal clear. We just didn't know them. That's one thing that they do carry on into future seasons is the use of like looking at weather as an indication of demonic activity or of weird things happening. Mm-hmm. Which I do have to say that does make some of their retconning real fun with the fact that Mary, a former hunter and raised as a hunter too, just like her boys, did not notice those signs. That's the thing is I choose to believe that she was willingly ignoring them because she wanted so badly to have a normal life. There's just so much about this show that gets interesting when you look into later seasons. I mentioned Route 666. There are several characters in the first season that I really wish they'd continued to use because they were just really interesting and great. Cassie from Route 666 is one of them because she... She would have been an amazing contact for the boys to have because she's a journalist, she is a spitfire, she is the only woman that Dean has ever loved until Lisa, like later in season four and five or just five, but somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. So she is such an interesting character. And then we've also got um, Missouri, who we should have talked about more because she is arguably the person who got John into hunting. Home is an episode that fucks me up every time I watch it. But yeah. Missouri is like, she is such a, an interesting, engaging character, especially because she presumably still has a very close relationship with John and John does not play well with others most of the time. She's presumably the only person who can cow him into doing things and who actually got him on the track of hunting, which is an interesting ethical dilemma I wish they'd looked into because... Mm -hmm. Both of those characters are people I should have put in my notes because in the moment of watching them, I'm like, this is great. This is amazing. I love these characters. Cassie and that Missouri are two of the most amazing characters in this season for their one-off appearances in the strong impressions that they leave, especially Cassie in her situation. And they just kind of... They never come back, and I think that it's worth mentioning that both of them are Black women. Yep. And Bobby stays you know, through the rest of it, he becomes a fixture. But Missouri and Cassie, who were arguably the strongest female characters in that season, more so than Mary, because Mary got even less screen time than any, than either of them, they are so interesting, but they are Black women, and this show has a terrible track record with how they handle their Black female characters. They're female characters in general, but the women of color get the worst part. They just can't really keep anything consistent. With anyone who is not a white man. It's it's talked into the dirt by the fandom, but for a reason. It's frustrating and annoying. Oh my god. The only female deaths that I come even a little bit close to forgiving, and even then, I could discuss the women in Supernatural as its own like show, but I only think that deaths were ever plot-supported for Bella, because Bella was specifically meant to be a foil for Dean, with Ellen and Joe. 
I hated the fact that Ellen and Joe died, but that was going to, the fifth season was going to be the final season, so it makes more sense for them to die, because they were also going to kill off Bobby and Cass, and like, other main characters. It was going to be the end. Yeah, I wish it had been. But the fact that Cassie and Missouri are just forgotten about is just, it's worse than some of the deaths they have in there, because they're amazing characters, and I think Missouri could have fit into kind of an almost pseudo-Bobby type of role. But they never touch her again. Missouri would have been an amazing supernatural contact for them, especially with later seasons when they go more into like the special children, when they get into, I'm blanking on the specific episode, but I'm remembering a season when they were like very reliant on a psychic. God, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was after the horseman came into the play. It's been so long. They do use, yeah, they use a psychic when a bunch of reapers have been trapped. It's it's part of one of the subplots in, I want to say, season four or five but they do have a psychic that appears in season four who comes back later and serves a really important part of part in the story she also dies that's the thing about a lot of supernatural characters is most of them die and i don't mean to say that like i don't want to replace bobby i don't want to get down on bobby because i love bobby singer and i love jim beaver he i want him to be my uncle but it could have been great if they could have had bobby and missouri because bobby is the hunter with all of the hunter information and missouri would have been a totally different perspective they would have been a great team but for the boys because if you had Bobby, who is arguably one of the most knowledgeable hunters that, that they have, and then you give him this more supernatural, uh, not a foil. She wouldn't be a foil to him. She would be more of a complimentary character, I guess. Yes. So if you had Bobby, who, you know, he's arguably one of the most knowledgeable hunters in the game, and then you paired him with this complimentary character of Missouri, who isn't a hunter, but she is extremely knowledgeable and extremely skilled in more explicitly supernatural setups as a psychic. Mm-hmm. That would have been a dream team for the boys. And that would have like given so many interesting storylines having this more down-to-earth country boy versus a very... Oh, how do I phrase this? This very like woo-woo psychic... I don't know how to say it because this whole show is woo-woo psychic. <laughs> no, she's definitely, like, she's more, not spiritual, but, you know. She's got more of the new agey flavor to her. Yeah, that, <laughs> she just, she could have been so cool. That's the thing about season one is that the the high points are really high. And as a series, it trends very high because it's just, that that season is superb. But the lows they hit so much harder because any wasted potential in this season just feels so disappointing. It really does. And I think that's what's made watching it again so hard, watching it post-finale, because that is still super new for us recording this. It's barely been a couple months since the show ended. I I kind of went numb to the finale at a certain point because I wasn't expecting much and it still disappointed me. I have not seen the finale. I do not plan to watch from where I left off in the 10th season through the 15th at this point because it's become something that I don't recognize. Mm -hmm. And I was actually really excited to be able to watch it again and kind of refresh my memory. I believe that it is completely within my right to say half of this show does not exist to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to say that people who like it are dumb or that they have bad taste. Like, you can like things for different reasons and you can like different parts of things than other people, but it's become something that I don't personally like or recognize in the newer seasons. So I just kind of brushed it off, but I know people in my RP circles who were absolutely heartbroken and were having trouble going back to the series at all because of how badly the ending tainted it for them. Even if they didn't watch the finale, even if they hadn't watched the past few seasons, it had such an impact because of how bad it was. I'm gonna be honest, that's kind of why I fell out of the fandom in high school, because I didn't fully let go of the series until the season before Demon Dean. And from the Leviathan on, I just got more and more disappointed. And it wasn't until watching this where I was able to finally put into words what it was. And that's because, you know, this was my introduction to horror, I now realize. And that was 
one of my favorite things is the first seasons, those early seasons, genuinely scared me. And there were scenes watching this again as an adult that still scared me, or at least had me like, oh, Bloody Mary <laughs> still gets me today. Oh my God. Like, yeah. I wish I had written down which episode it was specifically, but there was a specific episode that just chilled me the entire time. And then think to the episodes that I was watching after that, you know, thinking specifically to Leviathan episodes, thinking specifically to the musical episode and to Scooby Natural, which I'm getting very solemn about how this show kind of ruined itself for me personally in high school. But, oh God, I lost my train of thought after Scooby Natural. <laughs> I think that part of why we both approach Supernatural so differently, even though we both have kind of, have, we've sworn off the later seasons of the show, but I think the reason that I have such an easy time just kind of excising the seasons I don't like. I think that's so easy for me and so simple for me to go back to the early seasons and go, no, this is a show that I love and it's not tainted for me on a fundamental level is because I did not watch it as it aired. That's actually a really good point. <laughs> it imprinted myself so hard in my head as like, these are things that I watch on DVD. I watch them through a different medium. I watch them when I want to. That it gave me a kind of control over how I viewed the series and my viewing experience with the series. Okay, so earlier I had mentioned how I have my personal Remedial Chaos Theory episode of this show. For those who do not know, uh, there is a show called Community that aired on NBC that was created by the creator of Rick and Morty, Dan Harmon. This show follows a group of people in community college. That's not what's important here. What's important is there is an episode in season three, I believe, called Remedial Chaos Theory. It is a bottle episode that's solely there to explore the dynamics of each character together as a group, what have you. It is often called the best episode to start on compared to the pilot. And I was watching this Supernatural and realized that Scarecrow is my personal pick as the Supernatural Remedial Chaos Theory. Because, yeah, the first episode is great, but Scarecrow, in my opinion, is the best example of Supernatural as a whole and what you're getting when you get into it if the first episode doesn't speak to you. That is an episode I would say to someone who isn't sure if they want to watch Supernatural, watch this episode and then decide. So I have my own, what I would call remedial chaos theory, except for me, it's the trouble with Tribbles. Because when I get somebody into Star Trek, the original series, it can be kind of hard because like it's hokey, it's old sci-fi they have film language that is different and just all kinds of stuff that can keep people from getting into it if they've only seen more modern shows. So I start people on The Trouble with Tribbles, which is a fun and absolutely adorable episode. All of the characters are have a really good show, but I don't think that Trouble with Tribbles is the best Star Trek episode. I just think it's the most user-friendly. If anybody wants to debate me on the best original series episode, just like get an animal skull and fill it with like some acorns and some pennies and shake it in the woods and I'll find you. I personally consider Scarecrow to be one of the best Supernatural episodes that they ever made. They have got some fantastic episodes in the first season. They have some amazing ones later. None after season five, I'd say personally, but they have some great episodes across the first few seasons. I think that Scarecrow is a standout. I do not personally like starting people on an episode that I think is objectively the best because A, I don't want them to be dis disappointed when the series isn't like that. And B, I think that the personal best episode to start somebody on is Bloody Mary. Now, I know that when we were talking, I said Hookman, and I do think that Hookman is also a great place to start. I would honestly want to screen them as the double feature of Bloody Mary and Hookman, because both mm -hmm. of those are really accessible mythologies. People know about Bloody Mary, they know Carhook Handor Man. It's really familiar to people, but both of them are really scary ghost stories, especially Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary still terrifies me when I watch it, but they're both really great ghost stories. They're familiar ghost stories. 
and they both have very interesting takes on the ghosts themselves. Like, with the girl being the one controlling the evil hookman ghost without knowing it, and with Mary being, like, the actual ghost of a person who cast herself as Bloody Mary. Yeah. So that's that's my personal thing, is I adore Scarecrow, and that's why I wouldn't show it as a first one, is I think it's amazing, but I think that it's almost too good to start with. And because I kind of like being able to watch a show with people and getting to something like Scarecrow and they're, and getting, you know, smacked gently of like, why didn't you show me this before? <laughs> and I'm like, because this is how I hook you into it is you don't know where the good episodes are, so you have to watch it. <laughs> but like that and the fact that I think Bloody Mary and Hookman have more familiar mythology. I do have to agree on that because those are very good set picks. And Hookman is one episode that... Hookman and Scarecrow are the episodes that I cite as what made you love Supernatural. Those are literally the two episodes that I remember watching the commercials for as a kid and being like, oh, this is... This is pretty good. But for me, the mm -hmm. reason that Scarecrow is probably... Yep, the episode that I would show someone first or tell them to watch first is because that is an extremely character-driven episode. It perfectly describes to me each character on their own, each character together, and what the core of each of them is. You know, they're both looking for their father, but in very different ways. Sam is going for this direct way of, I'm going to find mm -hmm. him. Whereas Dean's thing is, we have to follow dad's orders. And then you just have their dad looming in the shadows, not actually appearing in the episode, but being just latent under every single scene, even when he's not being mentioned. And then you have what, each of them on their own adventures, with Dean going through this idyllic little town where something's not quite right. And the Sam, when he meets Meg, it's also the introduction of Meg, who is definitely my favorite character at this point like re-watching it Cass and Dean are out they're out Meg is in Meg is in my heart I love evil pretty demon lady <laughs> I totally agree with your reasoning on um on Meg and I think you are right especially with how John looms so large in Scarecrow but part of why I would have why I would pick Bloody Mary or Hookman is because both of them have instances of the boys working apart and together, but they are fundamentally together. And to me, like, it's a show that is about two brothers. It's good to showcase them when they're together, so that when you're actually watching it chronologically, it hits harder when they're not together, because they're not supposed to be. But I do think Scarecrow is a really good example of how they can work apart and how they can't really stay distant. Mm -hmm. I have to say the most unfortunate thing watching this again is I realize I don't like Supernatural anymore. I've always known like later seasons I wasn't a fan of, but it was, oh, it had to be at like the beginning of the week when I was trying to watch two or three episodes a day because that's never been an issue for me preparing for this show. I love binge watching shows, but it became so painful to just keep watching and watching and watching, especially after Scarecrow. I think that's actually where that started is after Scarecrow, it just went downhill for me. And it's really sad because I remember I have such good memories of this show growing up. So that's the thing is it was good that I was watching it with another person and we had to like work around our schedules because I would have binged watched it in like a day or two. But for me, it, it still hits all the right notes, and it's still so nostalgic for me. My heart breaks a little for you, even if we don't have the same relationship with the show, because it would be heartbreaking for me to not be able to just go back to it over and over again. But also, I have Smallville to fill that little hole. You've got your, you've got your comfort media, and I've got my comfort media. Oh, what's that John Mulaney quote? We're not so different, you and me. You've got your Supernatural, I've got my Smallville. Both have but horribly <laughs> repressed gays with daddy issues. See, I would have said something more along the lines of, we're not so different, you and I. I've got my Smallville, and you've got that fucking trash can of a show. 
<laughs> See, but I can't say that because Smallville is too, just in a different way. Actually, very similar way. And Supernatural isn't all a trash can. Like, it has elements that it does extremely well, but when it's bad, it's like, it's campy bad. It's fun bad. See, Smallville's the exact same way. It's just, God, I don't know how to put this without it sounding mean. I mean, I've been dunking on a show that I absolutely love, so go ahead. If I had to kind of put into terms as a former massive fan of Supernatural and a lifelong massive fan of Smallville, the way that I see it is they are both trash, they are both fire, but they didn't stop caring about Smallville. Like, it got trashy, and it got, oh my god, I... (laughs) I had to take a break in season eight because it was just so, it was so bad, but it's also in fire. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just remembered the Russian camp. God. <laughs> and fucking Oliver. Just, just <laughs> oh, God. Oh, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I need to take a minute. <laughs> no, that's totally okay. Take your time. Because both shows get ridiculously campy, especially Smallville being based on, like, Silver Age comic books. Let me put it this way. The major thing that turns me off from late Supernatural is a lot of the times it feels like they're making jokes at the expense of their own show and at the expense of their fans. It feels very mean-spirited. That's the thing that, like, I've noticed with it is that Ever since it became extremely popular and it became known that it has a predominantly female fan base, there's just been this weird instinct of the writers and showrunners to punish the fans. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas with Smallville, it is just a natural progression. Like, it's always been a cheesy, campy show, but the levels that it reached was just the natural progression of what it was, and they were never doing it to spite their fans they were never making these jokes because oh we have a mostly female queer base let's make jokes at their expense no it it was usually at their own expense see and i feel like supernatural at some point the showrunners had this kind of opinion that they were that supernatural had become almost like the regular cable version of Game of Thrones or something. Some show that, like, people are super into. It was incredibly popular. But they didn't... I think they didn't like their fan base demographics mm-hmm. and had more fun taking pot shots at the people who made them popular Yeah, than they necessarily should have. Oh, yeah. And, like, I will give some of the actors a lot of leeway because I genuinely think that, like, Jensen Ackles and Misha Collins really do care a lot about their fans. But I don't think that the showrunners have a lot of respect for the original fan base and really wanted, like, to cater to different demographics, especially as the show boomed in popularity, which, you know, alienated Mm me. Though I was also alienated by the fact that Sam and Dean were evolving into characters that I did not like or recognize. Mm -hmm. And while I want to say that's bad writing, I can also say that it's been 10 years. At the time that I stopped watching, it had been 10 years. And characters are allowed to evolve in good ways and in bad ways and still be good, well-written characters. I don't think that's the case with Sam and Dean. I think that the writing got really sloppy at a certain point. But, like, there's a lot of factors in the downfall of Supernatural for me, and none of them are pleasant. At least with Smallville, it could go out in its own way on its own terms. Yeah, and I will fully admit, after about, like, season eight, it does feel like grasping at straws. I did not really watch the Blur episodes when they were airing, but I caught one or two of them, and I will admit, what the hell were you guys thinking? Oh my god, what happened? It was either no tights, no flight, or no flight, no tights. Come on, guys, he's still flying. He's he's just jumping. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I remembered the Blur, and (laughs) I just 
started crying on the inside. Supernatural is bringing out too much Smallville for me. Oh my god. One day I'm going to get you to watch Smallville. And I will be okay if you stop watching after season four. Because season four was Jensen's season. And he's a fucking delight. I do. I mean, I've watched several bad horror movies for him. Though he was in better horror movies than Jared Padalecki. God, he was. I couldn't even finish House of Wax. Like, not because it was bad. I was just so bored. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on You Got to Know. I've been your host, Bo Tamison Bennett. You can find me on Twitter at Tied with a Bow. That's Bo with a B O. Or Instagram at Hellish Rebuke Creative. If there's a show you'd like to see a friend and I discuss, let us know there. Please consider supporting the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes below. This show is made possible by your support. That includes just talking about us. Share us with a friend, and we'll see you next time. Music for the show by Kevin McLeod. Songs used. Impact Prelude. Anachronist. Saporific.